1 Peter chapter 1, um, part of the, uh, the great statements of faith uh, uh, Sunday school series. So this is the, uh, the outline of what I'm going to be, uh, what I'm going to be taking you through today. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a background on uh, the First Peter, uh, the letter. Um, and then we're going to go into the text. So we're going to kind of break the, the first 12 verses up into some chunks. First, we're going to talk about uh, the greeting in the first two verses. And then verses 3 through 12, which is kind of the, the meat of what we're talking about. It's, if you actually look in the original Greek, it's like one long sentence. Um, and I, I uh, borrowed this outline from uh, John MacArthur. So the verses 3 through 5 are preserved by the power of God. Uh, verses 6 through 9 is proven by the trials of persecution. And then verses uh, 10 through 12 is predicted by the prophets of God. Um, so that's what we're going to be studying today. At the end, I've tried this. I don't know if this is going to really work or not, but I've tried to put together a visual summary of the verses. And then if we actually have enough time, because I don't really know how long this is going to take, I have some Peter trivia that we can, uh, that we can talk about. So, um, so the background. So who is the author of this letter? Um, well, if you look at verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ seems to be pretty definitive. And then in chapter 5, he also talks about uh, being a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Um, and also, it was uh, the authorship of, of this letter was universally recognized by the early church fathers. Um, however, just to let you know, there have been some liberal scholars in the last 200 years who have said, no, nah, we don't think Peter really wrote this, because um, the, the Greek that's used in this letter is too sophisticated for an uneducated fisherman. Um, and also, uh, Peter talks a lot about suffering and persecution and the severe systemic persecution of Christians didn't really happen un until under the uh, Roman emperors Domitian and Trajan, which were at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, which is well after Peter was martyred. Um, the answer to those things is, Peter was a, a, a businessman, he was a fisherman, so he would have known Greek because that was the, the universal business language of the time, just like English is the universal business language of today. Um, also, uh, he mentions that Sylvanus was, uh, could have been his, uh, his scribe and that he could have you know, fancied up the, uh, the words there. Um, and regarding the, uh, you know, the, the time in which uh, this letter was written, there was definitely persecution of Christians, you know, even well before uh, the, the end of the first century. I mean, the Romans didn't like the Jews at all, and Christian, Christianity were seen as an extension of, of the Jews, and the Romans really didn't like, they liked the Christians even less uh, than, the, than the Jews. So, um, and then getting back to it, the early church fathers all agreed that this was written by Peter. So, but just to let you know that there's, there's a controversy when you even look at some simple things that you think like the authorship of a letter. When was it written? Um, here's another thing where commentators are split. Um, it, was, it was written somewhere in either the late 50s to the, you know, to the mid 60s AD. You don't really know when. Commentators are split. 
as to whether it was written before or after AD 64. AD 64 was when uh, Nero burnt Rome and then blamed the Christians for it. So just so that you know, it was, it's around this time, but I think the thing to, to keep in mind that this was anyway 25 or 30 years after the resurrection of Christ where Peter had a long time to reflect on um, the lessons that he learned and the, the teaching that he absorbed and then was actually able to, uh, to live out in his life after Christ's resurrection. Where was this written? A lot of times people want to know that. Uh, it says that the letter comes from Babylon. Well, does this mean the actual city of Babylon or does it mean Rome? Again, commentators are split on this. Um, according to Josephus, there were a multitude of Jews living in Chaldean Babylon um, in, the, you know, in the mid to the end of the first century. Um, or it could have been written in Rome because eventually you know, Peter was martyred in Rome. But just to let you know, there's, you know, commentators don't all agree. Um, to whom was this written? That's an important thing to consider when we're looking at, um, when we're looking at these, these letters. It was definitely written to Christians in Asia Minor. However, once again, commentators are split. Was this primarily written to Jewish Christians? Um, so the evidence in favor of that is, in the very first verse, it says it's written to the uh, elect exiles of the dispersion, and that's actually a, a technical word that refers to the scattering of Jews. Um, uh, also in uh, Acts chapter 2, um, it says that there were devout Jews from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and that's also the regions that were addressed in this letter. Um, however, there's a lot of evidence that it was written to Gentile believers. Um, in the verses that I have here, uh, they uh, talks about people who were formerly in darkness, um, and that would probably not refer to Jews so much as it would refer to Gentiles. Um, so the answer, I guess, the, the correct answer is both. It's written to both Gentile, uh, Gentile and Jewish believers. Um, and again, commentators are split. Um, so like John Calvin and Matthew Henry are in the Jewish believers camp, and uh, like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul are in the Gentile uh, Christians camp. Fortunately, uh, the why the letter was written, there's really no uh, controversy about that. Uh, this is an encouragement to persecuted believers. Um, some people think that, or some people have said that Peter is the apostle of hope, just like John is the apostle of love, and Paul is the apostle of faith. Um, and this is uh, how to maintain hope in the midst of suffering. Yes. Yes, that, that is entirely uh, possible. Uh, there are some commentators who said that the using Babylon for Rome didn't really happen until like uh, Book of Revelation was written, which was much later in the first century. So, uh, yeah, like I said, they're, they're split. Um, so, um, oh, I didn't. So this is a map of uh, Peter's travels. So it's just you know he you know we a lot of times we think about Paul and, and these great missionary journeys. Well, Peter also 
um, had a bunch of his travels. And the, specifically where uh, this letter was addressed to is in this, the region that's in the, the red box there, uh, which is uh, in now in, uh, uh, in Turkey. And specifically the, the greetings that, um, that Peter has, it's written to the believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia which is kind of east to west. And so if the letter was written in Rome, you would almost think, and, and you were expecting someone to carry the letter um, to these believers, you might want to order it kind of west to east. But if Babylon was over here, then it would be logical for the letter to be written, that it'd be addressed to east to west. Again, it's not definitive, but it's kind of interesting. So anyone have any questions about the background? All right, now we can actually get into the, uh, the letter itself. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been in, announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Oh, amen. All right, so we're going to look at, uh, now we're going to look at the, at the greeting, uh, the first two verses. Um, so who is this letter addressed to? All right, all right so since, all right. The, where's the mouse? There it is. All right. Who's it addressed to? The elect exiles of the dispersion, right. So there's actually a lot of, um, there are a number of parallels between, if we, if we look at those, actually those three words, the elect exiles of the dispersion, there's a lot of parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if we look at elect, 
So Old Testament Israel is, uh, is God's chosen people. Um, and we see that in, in those uh, two verses from, uh, from Deuteronomy. But New Testament Christians are God's elect. Um, you know, in Romans uh, 8.33, let's see, we are, you know, we are God's elect. And in uh, Colossians 3.12, um, we are God's chosen ones. So there's this parallel between Old Testament and New Testament. The same thing for the, uh, for the exiles. Um, Old Testament Jews, obviously, they were exiled multiple times. They were exiled in Egypt, in Assyria, in Babylonia. Um, but New Testament believers are spiritual exiles. We're waiting for a heavenly home. And that's actually in, in, in these verses. Um, even later on in, in this letter in 1 Peter, we're called sojourners and exiles. And then if we look at the, the dispersion, well, you know, Old Testament Jews were scattered throughout the world. Um, but also New Testament Christians uh, are scattered throughout the world, even at the time of the writing of this letter. I mean, in the Great Commission, um, where does Jesus tell the disciples to go? He, he tells them to go to all nations and tell them the good news. And in Acts 1.8, what does the resurrected Jesus tell the apostles to do? To go and make believers in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, but also, and probably what's pertinent for, for this letter, if you look in Acts 8.1, this is right after the stoning of Stephen. Um, it said, there arose in, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all what? They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Um, so you can see that there's a lot of Old Testament and New Testament parallels just in who the letter is addressed to. And a conclusion that we can draw from that is the New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new temple the new Israel, and the new people of God. So I, I, I guess another way of, of looking at that is as, as Gentile believers, we've been grafted onto the, onto the true vine uh, of Jerusalem, of, the, uh, um, of Israel as a, uh, as a chosen people of God. Oh, shoot, should have asked a question here. So uh, if we go to verse 2 again, What do we see in this, uh, in verse 2? Yes, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, we do, yeah. Um, we do see the Trinity, we do. But, so right at the, be you know, right at the beginning of this letter, we see that, um, we see almost the, we see how, how God's power is actually preserving the New Testament believers. Because remember, they've been scattered. And yet, what, what are something that we can look forward to? Is we have, it's the power of the triune God um, is working to, um, to save his people. So we've got the foreknowledge of God the Father. Um, and there are uh, multiple verses where... You know, we look at God's sovereignty, you know, Romans 8, 29, those who he foreknew, he also called. Um, so there, you know, this is all part of God's sovereign plan, God's foreknowledge. 
You look at the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us in God's truth. Um, and then there are also a lot of other verses that talk about the, the sanctification of the Spirit. And then if we're looking at the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, uh, in the Old Testament, that was uh, the, the priest, when the priest was ordained, he was sprinkled with blood. And yet we've been sprinkled with blood as the basis of, uh, of the new covenant, and that's something that we celebrate um, every, uh, every week at, uh, at communion. And I found this interesting quote from uh, Martin Luther. Um, ye, now, ye have now peace and grace, but still not in perfection. Therefore, ye must go on increasing until the old Adam be dead. This is where grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it continue uh, to grow. So that's the greeting. Um, now we're going to look at the, uh, the verses 3 through 5. Um, so just, um, just as a reminder, so here's uh, verses uh, 3 through 5. So who do we notice is doing all the work? Oh, and we can actually go back here. Who's, who's doing all the work in this work? Uh, I hope that I didn't have a typo. I thought I cut and pasted this from uh, Bible Gateway, but yeah. Who, who's doing all the work here? I'm sorry? Yeah. So according to what? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who, who raised Jesus from the dead? God. This inheritance is what? It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. God's doing all the work here. I mean, and, and isn't that the, the essence of, of faith? Um, I, many, you know, heard a lot of sermons that, um, you know, this is that what we believe in is something that's already been done. It's already been accomplished. Jesus has already been raised from the dead. Now, it requires a response from us, but God is the one who's doing all the work. So I found this, uh, um, specifically with respect to verse 3 about the, the living hope, I found this great quote by uh, Spurgeon. Um, it is also called a living hope because it is imperishable. Other hopes fade like withering flowers. The hopes of the rich, the boasts of the proud, all these will die out as a candle when it flickers in the socket. There is no unwaning hope beneath the changeful moon. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I, you know, we could spend a lot of time here, but it's a living hope. This hope is not dead. The hope is living. It's alive. It's active. And it's one. It's just. It's just great. And this hope leads to this inheritance uh, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So, could I have a volunteer to look at? Uh, look up uh, Matthew six nineteen to twenty. Good. Go ahead. Yeah, Tim. You raise your hand. 
right, so you see, the, you see the difference? Things on Earth are temporal. They're going to fade. Even though we think that they're treasures, they don't last. They're not satisfying. But the inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven is imperishable. It's not subject to decay. It's, it's going to last forever. It's undefiled. It's pure. It's unfading. So if we look, um, if we look at Moses, when, when Moses would go up on the mountain and visit with God, his face would be shining so much that he had to put a veil over it. But the ref that reflection of God's glory would fade. And, but the inheritance that we have in heaven, it's unfading. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna, you know, it's, to, it's perfect. So, and, and that's what we need, to, we need to look at. And again, and this is what God has done for us. He has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, to this inheritance. And not only do we have this inheritance to look forward to that's imperishable, unfading, and undefiled, not only that, he's given us the Holy Spirit as the guarantee or the down payment of that inheritance. I mean, that's just, that's just, it's just mind-blowing. Um, yes? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's the basis of that's what that's what we've been born we've that God has caused us to be born again into this living hope. That's what our hope is based on. It's it's based on the works that have been done uh, through the blood of Christ. Yeah, thank you, Landon. That was uh, that was really helpful. Uh, and then if we look at uh, look at verse five, guarded through faith. Someone want to get uh, Philippians four seven. So, so this is part of the uh, as part of that uh, the great um, uh, uh, great set of verses in Philippians four, where uh, he says, "Don't be anxious about anything," but it's we're be, we're being guarded. Actually, Christ is guarding our hearts and our minds. Um, so again, this we're being guarded also through faith in Christ. So not only is this, uh, this inheritance imperishable, 
but it's also, it's, it's guaranteed. It's not something that we're going to, that's going to be subject to lose. It's not like something that, that we can uh, hold on to and then lose our grip on, but it's actually being held for us and guarded. So that's just, uh, again, this is just amazing to think about what God has actually wor worked through. No. And the Holy Spirit dwells within believers. So, we, again, we have that. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, that, that was... Right. Again, who's doing the work? It's, you know, it's not something that depends upon, that depends upon us at all. It, it depends upon God and what he has done. Yeah, that's another that's another good point. Yeah, and it's it's the armor of what? It's the armor of God. Again, it comes from God. So yeah, thank you. Any other comments? Okay. Okay. Uh, so the next chunk of verses is where um, where we talk about where where, we, where Peter talks about um, suffering and trials. So. Um, uh, Brendan and Daniel did an excellent job in last week's Sunday School uh, to talk about um, trials and, and suffering, so I'm not going to recapitulate that, but I just have a, a, a couple of uh, reflections uh, on that. Hopefully it will be uh, kind of complementary to what they, uh, what they talked about. So if we could sum it up like really briefly, how does the world view persecution and suffering? Okay. Okay. Uh, I wasn't prepared to discuss that, but. Uh. Okay, any other? Uh? Yeah, so if, if I can, uh, so if I can paraphrase that, so what we usually want with respect to suffering, we want relief from suffering, right? Because we, we don't want it. Um, but what God actually intends for suffering is he's intending us to be redeemed through the suffering. He wants us to learn. I mean, even if we look at, um, if we look at, at Job that, that Brendan and Daniel talked about last week, you know, God had a, a twofold purpose in, in what he did to Job. One, he wanted to vindicate his holiness to Satan. 
and he actually wanted to draw Job to a fuller understanding of who God is, right? So that's kind of the, I, I think that if we can encapsulate what, you know, what those guys talked about last week, which was a, a, a great study, is God wants to, to redeem us through suffering. He doesn't want to, um, there's a purpose behind it. God is sovereign in all things, including the things that are difficult. But, so, how should we as Christians view suffering and persecution? Yes, Ronnie. Yeah, we'll get to that. So, um, so one way to look at it is we're supposed to look at it expectantly. Could someone look up First Timothy three twelve? I'm sorry, Second Timothy three twelve. Okay, Tim. Yeah, it's it's not a surprise. Um, also, if you look at even in the in um, the the upper room discourse. Where uh, uh, actually, does someone want to get uh, John 16? Uh, I think it's the last two verses, um, 32 and 33. All right, C Cynthia. <laughs> So it's, Jesus is specifically talking to the apostles, but that's definitely something that applies to us. If we actually profess the name of Christ, we will be persecuted. But again, how do we, how do we look at that? Look at the previous verses. We have a living hope that's based in the resurrection of Christ. We have this inheritance, this indestructible inheritance that's being guarded for us. And so if we can keep our eyes off of our current troubles and actually look at the bigger picture, that actually gives us hope. And that, I think that enables us to, um, to look at things from an eternal perspective. Uh, could someone look up 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18? Ronnie. Peter and Paul are really in sync here, so we need to look beyond these, well, Paul says it light momentary troubles. Um, when you're in the midst of it, it might, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's light and momentary. 
but compared to eternity, it is. Compared to this inheritance that we have waiting for us, uh, compared to actually being able to see the face of God forever and ever and being with all the saints praising his name, yeah, then we, we can look past that to this eternal weight of glory, as, as Paul puts it, or as Peter tooks, puts it, this inheritance that is, that is perfect. And as Ronnie said, we're supposed to look at this joyfully um, in two verses. So I think another way of looking at that is if we don't, if we look at the, from a perspective of God is, if God is sovereign, that means everything happens for a purpose. And what's God's purpose? God's ultimate purpose is for him to be glorified. So if, if instead of we looking at trials as something that we want relief from, but, if, but God has a redemptive purpose, even if we, we may never understand what that purpose is on this side of heaven, but that I think that God does have a purpose for it, and that if we can, I'll, I'll get you in just a second, Tim, and if we're able to just glorify God, even in the midst of, of the suffering, then I think that you know, that's how we can do it. Tim, you have a thought to add? take God at right to take God at his word that you know even though um, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death 
I will be with you. Yeah, Kathy? The thorn in the side, yeah. Yeah, Matt. So someone want to get uh, James 1, verse 2, and then uh, another person at Romans, Romans 5, uh, verse 3. David, do you have a comment? Oh, okay. All right. Excellent. Fire away. All right. Consider it pure joy, or some translations say consider it all joy. So I think that this gets back to the, the, the point that Ronnie, you made it a couple of minutes ago. Um, so we're on, uh, someone have Romans uh, five three. Yeah, Jay. And then you can keep going through the verses four and five. So there, so there's a purpose for suffering, but we're supposed to look at it joyfully, which is really hard. Um, and actually, we can't do that uh, in our own flesh, but we can do it through, uh, as Landon read, through, the, uh, through, through God who gives me strength. So. so another purpose of suffering is to actually test and to, uh, to prove our faith. So whoever had James uh, 1, can you read verse 3? I think it was you, David. Right. So another purpose of trials is to develop perseverance. And it's, as uh, I think it was, as Tim was mentioning, if you go through some of these cycles of trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, what does that do? 
well, God delivered me from this trial and this trial and this trial. Therefore, I can have confidence that he's going to deliver me from this next trial and the one after that and the one after that. Um, and so that, that encourages um, our belief. I mean, look at, you know, if you look at uh, Daniel 3, that's uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, they were literally going to be put into the, into the fiery furnace. And they, you know, they said, our God may choose to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to continue to believe. So, um, so it, it's a way of, of testing or refining us. Um, you know, God is, is really concerned about our sanctification. And, oh, yeah, Ronnie. great. I mean, and it also um, encourages, uh, encourages belief. Uh, you know, in verse 8, uh, Peter says, even though you don't see him, you believe in him. And as, as Jesus is, um, I think he's addressing, you know, Thomas after he has appeared to him, and now Thomas believes, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the, you know, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And just last week, um, from Pastor Matthew's sermon, I wish he was here so that I could show, I could demonstrate to him that I was listening, um, even though it was at the beginning of the sermon, but um, he said, don't keep your eyes on the road. Where are we supposed to keep our eyes? We're supposed to keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter um, of our faith. Um, and, and for Peter, where does this lead? Verse 9, all of this leads up to obtaining the outcome of your faith. What's the outcome of our faith? Salvation. Uh, again, this is, just, this is just amazing. So here's this quote from John Calvin uh, that I found that I, I thought was really excellent. Uh, we may enjoy the invaluable treasure of a future life, and also that we may not be broken down by present troubles, but patiently endure them being satisfied with eternal happiness. Um, so our last segment of verses, as we're running a little short on time, um, is predicted by prophecy. So where does prophecy come from? Okay, okay. So... so Actually, um, Peter says, uh, so 
uh, in, verse, uh, in, in verse 11 and in verse 12, Peter says it's the, the, the prophets in the Old Testament speaking with the spirit of Christ. And in verse 12, he says it's the Holy Spirit. Um, someone want to grab 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21? So the Holy Spirit speaks through uh, the prophets. So that's the the, um, the source of of prophecy. So what did the old prof- the Old Testament prophets see? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, can you flesh that out a little bit, Rob? Okay, not exactly what I was looking. Yeah, Cynthia? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So, um, so what the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead Tim. So the Old Testament prophets, they saw types and shadows, but they didn't see, and they, and they received promises, and they told promises, but they didn't see the fulfillment of them. So, but what do we see? Well, they, they wrote about it, but they didn't actually see it. Um, yeah, so what we see is we see, we see the resurrected side. We're on the, we're on the other side. They were on this side looking forward. We're on this side looking back. But we've seen the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. Yes. 
So which means, which gets back to, this was all part of the definite plan due to God's foreknowledge that he brought about. Um, so there are some things that the Old Testament prophets long to understand. And actually, Tim uh, mentioned this, and I think Cynthia mentioned this too. Um, one thing is the future plan of God's redeeming grace for the salvation of the Gentiles. I mean, that's mentioned in multiple places in, uh, in Isaiah, um, and it's also in um, Romans uh, 9 and 10, where that was actually predicted by the, the Old Testament prophets, but they never actually got to, uh, um, got to see that. Uh, the sufferings of Messiah um, that, uh, that Tim talked about was you know, in Isaiah 52 and 53, even though when Isaiah was probably writing that down, I was like, really? God showed him this, this is gonna happen to him? But, he, but through the Holy Spirit, you know, he predicted that. And then the future glory um, of Messiah. And again, uh, what Jay read from, uh, from the, the end of, uh, from Luke 24, it's, God, again, God didn't predict just the sufferings, but he also predicted the, uh, um, the glory of, of, the, of, the, of, of Messiah. And so, what is, quickly, what does this verse tell us about the purpose of prophecy? What does verse 12 say in our passage? They were preaching not to themselves. They were preaching to us, to New Testament believers. They were informing us and serving uh, New Testament believers to describe God's sovereign plan for our salvation. All right, we are about out of time. That goes back to what Tim is saying. Um, what Tim was saying earlier, be, in a way, because we can take God at His word. So, if we can take God at His word, we need to, you know, we can trust and obey. All right. So, whoops. Uh, all right. I have no idea if this is going to work out or if this is even going to be helpful, but I wanted to try and put like a visual together of these verses. So, well, we'll, we'll see if this helps. So we go to verse 1, we have the elect exiles of the dispersion. They're preserved by the, by the triune God. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection. We have this indestructible inheritance that's guarded through faith. And what does that lead to? It leads to salvation. Now, we're supposed to rejoice in our trials and sufferings, which tests our faith, but it also glorifies Jesus. It enables our faith to grow. And again, because our faith is growing, we can also have joy. And where does that lead? It leads to salvation. And then we have the prophets and the Old Testament saints. They only saw shadows and promises 
But what were those promises for? Those promises and prophecies serve us, serve the New Testament believers through the Holy Spirit who's describing God's sovereign plan. And where does that lead? It leads to salvation. So I hope that that was helpful. All right, we're at 1030. Um, Do you want to do a little Peter trivia? Okay, all right. So this is, I got this um, from David uh, Guzik's uh, study guide for, um, for First Peter in the Blue Letter Bible app. So, but I thought this was kind of interesting. So Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more often than anyone except for Jesus. Peter speaks more often in the Gospels than anyone except Jesus. Although, if we're to look at it, there's a reason that John MacArthur calls Peter the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. Um, so Jesus speaks to Peter more often than any individual in the Gospels. But Jesus rebuked Peter more often than any other disciple. Right? And Peter is the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. So Peter confessed Jesus more accurately and more boldly than any other disciple flip side, right? Jesus denied, uh, Peter denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple. And there's a flip side to that. Jesus addressed Peter as Satan alone among disciples, including he did not address Judas that way. When Judas was going was gonna to betray him, what, how does Jesus refer to him? He said, friend, do what you came to do. All right, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs>